0: Hello and welcome to Ben Yo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. What is the future of philanthropic giving? On this episode, I speak to Nadia Asparova. Nadia is an independent researcher trying to figure out how people work. She's written on the open source movement, the recent history of science funding, and how philanthropy might change with the advent of crypto billionaires. Hope you enjoy the show please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. Hey, everyone. I'm super excited to be speaking with Nadia Asparova. Nadia is a brilliant independent researcher. She's written books about the open source community. Uh, she's worked in startups. Her essays are widely read. Uh, she's given away with micro, money with micro and is an Emergent Ventures Fellow. Nadia, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, I read that you hate repeating yourself so I hope I don't have to make you do too much of that (laughs) given all the excellent essays you've written on your blog but starting with a micro granting I am interested in your view on what you have learned now from your experience with the program maybe what projects or people did you find the most impactful to fund and I think you ended up thinking independent research or independent research was a good area to fund then you ended up being an EV fellow yourself. So I'd be interested to know how your thinking has evolved on micro Yeah,
1: it's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I gravitated, end up gravitating towards independent research just because it was an area that I was interested in. So like the impetus for the helium grants was basically just saying, like, you know, why aren't more people just giving away small amounts of money from their own personal um, income? and seeing like what happens in the world because maybe a small amount of money. So like the original grants were $5,000 and then $1,000. Maybe that small amount of money can get someone to do something they otherwise wouldn't have done before. And that came from my own experience, uh, my first year out of college where I got a grant from a foundation to do my own research. Um, And that sent me down this whole different career path, I think, than if I had just gotten a normal job out of college because it made me realize it was possible for me to, pursue my own curiosities and design my own projects and then just sort of find ways to fund them. And that is basically how I've structured the rest of my career. Um, So I I wanted to, I guess, like impart that worldview onto other people um, through the the grants. Um, And yeah, I I think like it was a really helpful experience to like see that actually affects some of the people that i gave grants away to and some of whom i still keep in touch with um there's definitely a lot of noise that you get as well uh, and i think like maybe one of the things i learned when i first started I just kind of said these grants are no strings attached um you know it turns out if you're just trying to just give money away on the internet no strings attached a lot of people will flock in <laughs> with a lot of ideas on how you should give your money away um, and so i think maybe starting from that sort of idealistic position of Like I just want to fund your great ideas to having to narrow it down a little bit more just to sort of manage the inflow of applications that I was getting and um, And just help like you know help help set the right tone because you know I in the end I realized that, even though I wanted to be as wide reaching as possible like I am only human I'm the person processing the the applications and there are things that I prefer to look for or not look for and so it's you know I don't want to waste other people's time either so I think it was like helpful to kind of see the idealism meet pragmatic reality in some ways um uh yeah if only for my own sort of like sanity managing <laughs> applications
0: sure how many did you get in I don't know a six month period when it was full flying or even a year like a couple of hundred type of thing
1: I don't I'd have to go back and look at the numbers it was definitely in the thousands Um, in the
0: thousands wow that's the price of being a bit too famous
1: Um, yeah I mean I didn't really expect it like I think the first time I posted it it was there weren't really that many other micro grant programs like that at the time I think um and so I got a lot of inbound and then I just set up a mailing list and then um would sort of like ping people I ran it quarterly I think and had a rolling application um and yeah it just got to be a lot to manage and then I would also you know I only had so many grants to give away so it's I think it's it's good on the other end to sort of help set expectations and um yeah just like kind of manage who's coming in.
0: Sure, I don't, I don't think Tyler Cowan's Emergent Ventures gets like thousands or at least didn't in maybe its early days, it probably does now. Um, I'm interested, how did you uh, find the experience being, I guess on the other side applying for, I guess it's a little bit bigger than a microgrant. Uh, and maybe my second part to the question is, uh, obviously Tyler with uh, Daniel Gross has written this book on interviewing and talent and questions, but what question would you ask Tyler if it was the other way around and he was applying for an EV grant?
1: Oh, I have to think about that one. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think like the thing that I'd be looking for in anyone applying for a grant is like, it should be something that is tickling your curiosity so much that you just like, I mean, there are a lot, I guess another way of saying this is there are a lot of things you can do with your career that pay a lot more money than <laughs> uh, getting, like I feel like grants are there to sort of fill a little bit of a gap where you can't really, there's no other sort of path for you to figure out how to scratch this itch or go down this little you know rabbit hole that has just been sort of like bugging you for a while, um, whether it's a side project or whether it's a full-time thing. Um, uh, and yeah, like I think seeing evidence of that in someone who's applying for a grant regardless of of what the grant is, is is what kind of tips me over the line of like, oh, this is something you've been thinking about for a really long time. And this grant is going to help get you over the line. And it's often like one of the things that was surprising to me about helium grants, at least, was it's often not even about the money itself. Um, I've heard some people say that about emergent ventures as well who've received grants. Um, And that's probably true for myself as well, where sometimes it's just about getting external validation or giving you an excuse to think about something that on your own, it kind of gets relegated to the bottom of your to-do list or something like that. Um, And so, yeah, it's, it's often like strangely, not even really about the amount of money
0: that's, that's being given. Yeah. Someone's telling you like your idea is valuable. You're not crazy. We back you. We, you should, you should go for it. I think, I think there is a lot of truth uh, to that. I think I would maybe ask him one of his own questions about, Uh, what his most uh, irrational thought that he might believe to be true is, but it is quite interesting on that. Um, Your recent essay, Ideas Machine, looks at effective altruism, EA and philanthropic given. Um, I have a question from Tyler on this a little bit before we get into the EA. And his question is, how are crypto billionaires most likely to change charitable giving, EA aside? So uh, I kind of think this is interesting on the whole ideas machine idea, but maybe there is this new class of different crypto billionaires. Obviously we have the future fund, which is more EA aligned, but they might well think about giving differently. Do you have any intuitive sense about what might happen there?
1: Yeah, definitely. Although I think I could probably talk about this quite quite at length. Um, Go for it. Yeah, I mean, so like broadly my worldview or, thesis around um, like how we think about philanthropy is that it moves in these sort of wealth generations. Um, and so you have, so right now we're kind of seeing the, the dawn of the um, people who made a lot of money in the 2010s with startups. It's sort of like the you know quote unquote trad tech or startup kind of cohort. Um, before then you had people who made a lot of money in investment banking and finance and sort of like the early tech pioneers they all sort of form their own cohort Um, and then you might say like crypto is the next generation after that which will eventually break down into smaller subcomponents for sure but we don't really know what those things are yet I think because crypto is still so early Um, and they've sort of made money in their own their own way right and um, so I think when, when we talk about how will let's say yeah crypto billionaires change the world um the way i often see it discussed in public or in the media is like we talk we really hone in on like individuals and their individual perspectives on the world so we'll say oh you know elon is doing this thing with his money or jeff bezos is doing that thing with his money um but i think like what gets undervalued or discounted is that all these people are sort of products of their peers and their cohorts and their own generations. Um, And so when you have like a group of people that have made money in a certain way that is almost by definition, it's because it's a new wealth boom, it is um, they made their money in a way that's distinctly different from previous generations. And so that becomes sort of like a defining theory of change or worldview. there, like all the work that they are doing in this like sort of philanthropic sense is finding a way to like impose that worldview um and so like how will you know what, what will crypto's contribution to that be i think it's going to be really different from the startup kind of cohort um and there are a lot of i've written about this a little bit and i, I can go into it as well if, you, if you'd like but um for example like i think uh the trad tech cohort is much more interested in finding and uncovering top talent and in the sort of like meritocracy worldview where you have these, you know, young, unproven founders that went on to start companies that rivaled or took down these huge legacy institutions. And like that really shapes the view of that sort of like startup Y combinator kind of generation where they saw over and over again that um You can see someone who may not have a ton of experience in a topic but it just has like the right combination of ambition or grit or like seeing the world a certain way and they can like you know take down these big legacy institutions like that's really what defines that cohort Um, whereas i think in the crypto kind of generation you might see um, instead of thinking about sort of like yeah the power of top talent i think they're more about giving people tools to kind of build their own worlds. So it's a lot more diffuse. I don't think it's really about going toe to toe against um, legacy institutions in the way that TradTech is kind of more obsessed with. Um, It's much more about, uh, yeah, like sort of like programmatically ensuring that people have access to tools to build their own worlds or build their own lives for themselves. And so again, you can kind of think about how is that gonna play into their public legacy or what they do in the world. And I think it's still like, I just think it's way too early to really know what crypto's public legacy is going to look like. I think we are really only in the very beginning stages. Um, It's maybe similar to like, you know, in the early 2010s you saw some people who had made money from startups that were doing um experiments in philanthropy but like it was so early that comparing that to now it's just like completely different um and so yeah I think like we just don't really know yet but I think we would expect I think the answer to that question would just be like think about what does crypto actually value that is distinct from what previous generations have valued and then try to extend that into thinking about like how might that like play into sort of like social public values
0: that's really interesting. So it's this idea that perhaps the world building element, which seems to come with crypto, uh, perhaps might enter the thinking. Whereas your point was with the kind of tech startup Silicon Valley basis, they were searching for talent and that type of thing, which has kind of influenced uh, influenced their thinking. I hadn't thought of it like that. That's quite interesting. You. You asked a question also within your essay about why there are not more ideas machines, but I was unclear if you actually answered that question to your satisfaction, then you you came up with quite a lot of other ideas machines which are kind of started going. Um, Do you have a clearer view now, maybe with some feedback on why there are not more and and where that would be going?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess like, and part of the impetus for that essay is that I really, I think to some extent, um, effective altruism has had a little bit of a monopoly on idea machines. Um, In that like, yeah, if if you are someone who has an interesting idea that doesn't quite fit into the, you know, typical sort of startup machine, if we can call it that, Um, the only place for you to go is, uh, is effective altruism and try to convince them that like your cause is interesting. Um, I think the answer might just be as simple as there's a lot more capital sloshing around now than there was before. And so in the past, we were sort of, and I kind of touched on that in the essay of like, yeah, there's, there's just like so much more capital available and so many different people now that are controlling that capital um that you don't kind of have to be forced into the same machine to get your ideas heard um so I actually do feel optimistic that like this is going to be very different it is already now different and is only going to be more different in the next few years but I think we are starting to see more and more idea machines crop up um and uh but yeah, I think it's, I, the answer might just be simple, that there's just way more money now than there was, whatever, five, 10 years ago.
0: Sure. That makes sense. A lot of it is driven by by the cash available. Uh, you, uh, you talk about, or you seem to argue for a pluralistic view of the world, that there are many types of uh, giving or uh, philanthropy that we might be interested in. And I was interested what areas of giving or impact do you really rate which don't really fall under an EA framework that you'd be interested that people should think about giving to or spending their time on?
1: Um, I'm not sure that I I get asked this sometimes but I guess I'm not sure that my opinion really matters that much to be honest Um, because I am so yeah sort of like Mm. pro-pluralism. I think I'm like. Yeah, oddly sort of agnostic on what people actually do with their money and I've I've never really resonated with this concept of like doing good like I don't even know what good means. Um, I think it means something different to everyone so it's uh, like what I mostly care about is that more people are experimenting and doing things right like and that was again sort of what was driving. um, Writing that that essay about idea machines was just like. You know, effective altruism is great. I personally don't resonate with its ethos, but like why aren't there more people trying experiments like that? Like that is the concerning <laughs> question to me. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's more about like I just want more people to be experimenting with more things
0: sure I think I think for me, it's part of the kind of impact on systems and particularly the power of art, which I guess because some of it's got utilitarian roots, they somewhat dismiss, although. I think you noted this, like for instance, the Future Fund has got a little bit of uh, thinking about, well, what the power of media and arts and books and that type of thing can do for that type of movement. So maybe it will evolve again. Uh, and it seems to me you, you write, you blog, you do research, um, that in a way you are part of the so-called creator economy, even if it's not readily understood by everyone by that term. But your work is kind of more open-ended and less transactional than say social media creators who are trying to have to earn a living just via their channel or something. And you've also touched on your work about the importance of of rituals and things like that. So I'd be interested in your evolving thoughts on what it means to be a creator today and how you think of yourself and whether you do you think of yourself as part of that creative community and and what that means.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I guess by the book, I probably fit into the category of creators. I personally don't, it's like, I, I don't, I don't think I think of myself in that bucket and I'm not exactly sure why. Um, I think I may have touched this a little bit in the, this essay I read about sort of creator economy and my, my qualms with <laughs> the concept of, of creators um at least the way that they kind of look today uh so like you know people will call me a writer for example and like i don't really identify with that term either because i think it feels like this terminal state of like i exist to write (laughs) um versus i just think of myself as someone who's just driven by curiosity and i want to explore things but um i also like like for me, the writing and the research is all about trying to understand a question that has been bugging me for a really long time. And then once I figure it out, I want to go do something about it or I want to like figure out how to like translate that into action. Um, I think getting too hung up on a, a, a sort of like creator as terminal state can make people lazy. Um, or at least that's, that's my fear of it is that you just sort of end up like when you know that you're being rewarded just for thinking out loud or for your ideas or for whatever you're kind of just like, it's, it's very low cost to you to kind of just like spit ideas out. Um, and I think a lot of creators or writers, um, have had this strange of experience of realizing that it's almost a little bit easy to sort of game the system if you really wanted to, right? Like you start to notice the things that you can say online that will get you the clout and the attention if you really wanted it. You start to see the same sort of pattern of like, um, yeah, just sort of like attention that you can get. And it can, it can sort of like soil the experience a little bit, I think, or at least that's my experience of it. Um, because it's like, well, I could just say, you know, (laughs) you just keep spitting out these things kind of mindlessly and people will pay attention to it, but I don't, that's not actually like rewarding. Um, and so I think that's maybe what I want to fight against is feeling, I I always want to feel like the work I'm doing is rooted in action and not just sort of creating for the sake of people to, you know, consume content. (laughs) Uh, and maybe that's just a cope. I'm not really sure, but that's that's sort of how I think about it.
0: Yeah, I think you did touch on that. And that's the kind of transactional nature. You can kind of game the algorithm, or I guess you even see like I think one of the most successful YouTubers ever is, is Mr. Beast, and he spent a lot of time figuring out what makes a great video on YouTube. But and obviously there's very successful and things like that. But there is an element which feels a little bit transactional, whereas your work is quite a much more open-ended um, than that. and I, But I do think that if you kind of consider, well, r- writing or being say an essayist, uh, you know, you do write essays and they are uh, wonderful and thought provoking and all of that. So it, I think in some ways that is what it means to be a writer, even if you haven't got <laughs> the transactional part of it. And, and maybe, you know, like you say, you've kind of gone down a, not quite patronage, but like a, a, a grant fellow type route in order to keep that, uh, uh, that thing alive rather than, rather than having to go a more uh, transactional. And I think it's interesting because it, it seems to me that it's almost a thread that you can pull out from maybe some of your thinking around um, open source communities and being around that uh, for so long. Um, so I'm kind of interested that since your book Many of your insights still seem to be true that, for instance, a small number of dedicated people maintain much of the open source code and, and what it is to be that community uh, within that. But do you see any resonance there between your work on open source and, and how you're working kind of in public today? And is there anything maybe different around how you think about those type of communities since uh, since your book was published?
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely um, I definitely see the there are parallels between how open source works and how creator economy more generally works, which was part of the emphasis for writing the book. Um, and yeah, I think I've just sort of continued to see that play out. Like a, a huge thread that did not, had not quite fully hit its stride at the time that um, working in public was published was just sort of the explosion of Web3 and, uh, DAOs and like all these sort of like new experiments in um, uh, like organizing creativity, I guess. Uh, So I think like if I were to write the book again today, I, you know, would absolutely include a lot more of that. Um, There just weren't as many examples to draw from. I don't think Web3 even was a term people were using by the time that that book was published. Um, So it's been cool to see it play out in all these different ways um, that I had not even. You know, fully covered in that book, but I still think like open source as um, a North star for me of like something that has been around for a while and that we have had the chance to see play out for let's say, you know, 20 plus years um, is a really just like, yeah, helpful example to make sense of everything that's happening right now and all these different new incentive models um, and ways of people yeah getting paid and doing things um, in terms of its relevance to my own life or my own work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think even probably like one, one of the strange sort of paradoxes about open source developers is a lot of them have full-time jobs as software developers, not doing open source. Like they're just sort of, you know, working at a typical software, uh, engineer kind of job. And then like they do their open source on the side, but the thing that they're best known for is their open source work, which is on the side. Um, and I kind of feel that way about like my own sort of yeah writing and research as well because uh yeah like I mean in the times when I'm more in like full-time writing research mode as you've said I'll do you know grants or contracts or whatever to sort of fund that lifestyle or I just do it out of my own savings um but then like you know I do go and work at startups as well right but like I don't feel like I'm known for the work that I do on at startups to me that's sort of the Translating it to action component of of research, where you know I've I've already spent some time to try to deeply understand a topic, and then I'm going to go work somewhere to put those ideas into practice. Um, but it is you know I, I would hear from open source developers some version of this like you know it's really strange that the thing that I'm actually getting paid to do full time is not the thing that I'm actually known for. Like why am I not getting paid for the thing that I'm actually known for? Um, and I think I feel that way a little bit too around. Um, yeah, like I I don't think people associate me with being a product manager at a startup, for example, like they associate me with like the work I've done that I don't necessarily get paid for that is like writing on the side or or the periods in which I'm doing research.
0: Sure. How how did that contrast with having a more regular because you did work for a startup well, I guess not too startup uh, for a time. Uh, I guess you found that fulfilling, but in a different way, but actually independent research is is kind of where it went for you.
1: Yeah, it is definitely very fulfilling in a different way. Um, I think like, I mean, I can only be in my head for so long. Um, it's very different to get to work with a team. Um, and and like in in every case where I've gone to work at a company, it's, it's also this really wonderful, like you can kind of sit in a corner and say, I think the world should work like this. But then when you're actually trying to make the world work like that, um, you will hit you know, harsh realities of why things don't work the way that you expected. And I think it's really good, like, um, and I've noticed this pattern in other independent researchers that I know. Like, I think a lot of the reason why um, people who become independent researchers, like the reason why they don't go into academia is because academia is much more uh, sort of sequestered away from practice, like you really are spending time in like the system of ideas. Uh, and you don't get the chance to really translate your ideas into practice, you're just like fully on like academic mode. Um, whereas with independent research, you actually have the the opportunity to sort of like build your life the way that you want, right? And I've noticed that other um, independent researchers who are also very interested in this idea of like both research married with practice, and that definitely is something that I care a lot about too. Uh, and so yeah, I think like being able to work at a company and sort of see your ideas play out and realize like why certain things don't don't work the way that you expect or oh yeah that definitely works the way that i expect or whatever it is um i think that can be <clears throat> very rewarding um and then yeah again there's sort of on the personal level just being able to work with people and collaborate with people in that way is um yeah just being part of a team uh, shipping things can be really satisfying uh all of that is is very fulfilling in a different way
0: cool yeah that's uh that's kind of really interesting seeing that balance all those differences and I guess it's part of like the pluralistic view of life that you can get you know different things from uh, different areas all all at the same time great uh, you created a personal reflection on faith with Henry Jew on a podcast where I think you concluded that maybe you had a little bit more faith or call it spirituality than perhaps you thought you had have your feelings around faith changed since then? And what does faith mean? Or perhaps, in a pluralistic view, some of the stuff that you might not think rationally in the mathematical world uh, now mean to you?
1: Hmm. So I was, yeah, just talking about this with my husband this weekend. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I like some aspect of that has not changed in the sense of, um, yeah, I'm very, I think I'm very driven by and interested in the things that are sort of ineffable in the world. Um, uh, I always think about my friend Michael Nielsen, who I think this used to be his Twitter bio. I don't really know why I associate this phrase with him, but uh, maybe it's still his Twitter bio, searching for the numinous. Um, and he's, I think, similarly just sort of yeah looking for that, that, that thing that creates that feeling of maybe being touched by God or having um, Yeah, just like a moment, a strong feeling that you don't necessarily know how to explain, let's put it that way. Um, And I think that drives a lot of people who are interested in science and technology as well. Like, I think there's this false divide that is placed between, let's say, science and art or science and religion. Um, But a lot of scientists that I know are like deeply moved by something spiritual or this sort of like wonder about the universe. Um, I don't think that's universally true, but I think it's more true than, um, than it, it may often seem. And I feel like that drives so much of, of my work of like, when people sort of ask, you know, like why, I don't know, like, why, why do you choose the topics that you're interested in? Or how do you know, like what you want to pursue in research? Like I never have a great answer to that. It's, to me, it's just sort of like, I have such a strong, feeling or some this thing is sort of like gripped me or taken a hold of me and like I have to just follow it to the end I don't even have a choice in the matter um I feel yeah like and and to me that is yeah sort of like spiritually motivated or or moving um so yeah I think that has been very consistent in me throughout my entire life um but there's yeah multiple roles that I think religion or faith or spirituality can play in someone's life and something that is definitely newer for me since um, ex- exploring that that podcast series with Henry uh, is I think I've become more interested in ritual and tradition um, especially as like we're talking about having kids now and thinking about like what is yeah what are, what are the the traditions that you want to pass down to your, your kids um, and I think religion can provide a lot of continuity in that or and it doesn't have to only derive from religion um, there are obviously many different ways that you can <clears throat> like find yeah rituals in your in, in your life but I think that's one place that um that it can come from and and that's something that I'm starting to explore and understand and appreciate more now than I did before
0: I think it's really good intuition to follow that first impulse that you have and which is why I, I'm putting you kind of in this bucket of creativity because I think that's an impulse that a lot of uh creatives have and for instance I think accountants are sometimes quite creative, not in the bad sense, but you know they're they're having to to follow some sort of intuition. And I think there is some research in the early science of science or science of progress. I can't remember the exact uh, researcher, but he called Um, two types of science progress, I think S1 and S2, where S2 was the formal scientific discoveries that you have, which you put in an equation, which are declamatory statements that you can argue about and, and go into the canon. But before you get into S2, you actually arrive in a state of science or creativity, which he called S1. And in that is much more messy, intuitive, You know, you have these a lot of uh, individual um, stories or anecdotes like how Einstein thought of relativity and all of this before, where it's really messy and unformed. By its nature, you haven't got a declaratory, uh, you know, piece of algebra that you can debate yet. And actually, uh, a lot of the stuff in S1 is very interesting and and less well uh, discovered. And I think what you described there about following an intuition or a curiosity or however it might be is... Where a lot of progress happens in that S1 space. Yeah. So riffing that on that, go on. Resonates.
1: That definitely resonates. Yeah.
0: So riffing on that, I mean, you've talked, there has been much talk about this science of science of progress, and you've written about uh, science funding and tech over the last decade. Uh, but I'm quite interested to know where do you think it will go in the next decade, and maybe if there was anything special about what's happened in the last decade. I, I guess you, you know, you you noted a lot of things which happened just in the last one or two or three years, you know, ARC Institute, different ways of science funding. Uh, But I was wondering, you know, what you saw over the last 10, what does it mean for the next 10? And and was there anything special that we've just gone through?
1: Yeah, it's hard. I feel like I'll have a much stronger intuition on this and maybe like two years, uh, because we I really do feel like we were just on the cusp of something that has immediately turned. And so it's so hard to know how it's going to play out. Um, but I think like one thing I, I feel like right now, the conversation in science funding is more about, there's a bunch of new tech wealth that has come in. That's more from, yeah, what I call like the trad tech or startup kind of cohort. And it's now, you know, butting up against sort of the legacy um ways of of funding um science even within science philanthropy but then also just sort of broadly like science institutions and so the the tension that i think people are sort of noticing or seeing is with like this like new tech wealth coming up against sort of like the old way of doing things right um whereas i think like in the next decade that's probably going to shift one more notch uh downstream where like it's I think the, the tension we will be seeing is between sort of trad tech ways of thinking about funding and um, and the sort of like crypto influenced ways of thinking about funding. Um, I just sort of, yeah, I feel like we, we are seeing that tension build and build now between the startup cohort and the, and the crypto cohort in many different ways. Um, and it's still, I think it's hard to know really like what direction that's gonna go in, but I think the question might become less about like, do I get you know government funding for my project versus take this sort of funny money from <laughs> a bunch of weird startup people? Um, it might be even like more extreme than where it's like, do I go you know work at an ins- institute at all, um, or do I do one of these crazy like you know science DAO things or something like that? Um, and again, like I think like it's probably important to like zoom out of all of that and say like all these experiments are really at the fringe like there's a whole world of science that it just this fundamentally doesn't even care about any of the stuff that is happening um this is all these are all very small drops in the bucket of like more broadly how science is done but i think like if i were taking a snapshot of it right now i think people are vaguely aware that the there are these like you know dsci initiatives that are happening and that people are experimenting but it seems like really fringe and just sort of like you know who knows what's going to happen there Whereas maybe a decade from now, we'll, we'll look and say, huh, like some of those experiments are actually starting to play out and people will be taking it a little bit more
0: seriously. Sure. Uh, do you have an intuition about what one or two of those might work out? Because I guess in some ways, this is the really interesting part, because we haven't had the decade. So we don't know which of those, yeah. whether it's a like Dow thing or or something else. Or are you you so uncertain that you wouldn't want to make a little uh, a little forecast?
1: Yeah, I still feel, I feel really uncertain. I think like Cryptoland has proven itself to be so unpredictable in so many ways and it moves and changes so fast that it's hard to, hard to know. But I think, I think that just broadly that the things that seem a little bit radical right now might at least, at least some of those might work out and start to seem like viable ways of funding your research or organizing your research or disseminating it.
0: Sure, that seems fair enough. I think, so there's a lot of, debate or I guess evidence that science or productivity of science may have slowed down in the last uh, decade or two and now just recently there's been some sort of counter arguments that maybe there's some areas which have stopped slowing down perhaps in biotech in in some other areas or maybe even uh, increased again and I think it's kind of interesting that if we are saying that there's an old blob of how science was funded and that was ticking along and we're still getting some discoveries but maybe at higher cost or or lower rate. But you've now got this kind of tail end of more radical, or they seem radical because they're new, um, that actually that might spark uh, a little bit more innovation or different innovation because it's gonna come from something that we haven't done. Uh, And maybe my kind of intuition is that's perhaps a glimmering of where we're seeing that actually this productivity is at least flatlining or maybe going to increase uh, in a couple of areas, say AI and, and say biotech. Do you think there might be any truth to that kind of idea or do you think this is just such a small amount and it's so uncertain, uh, who knows what it does and and do you, do you sense that we have had this same slow down in productivity or progress of science that people are kind of envisaging on the macro level from your experience in startup world and speaking to open source communities and the like?
1: You know, yeah, I I don't know that I I I buy that progress has been slowing down or stagnating in any shape or form. Um, I think I'd probably just say I'm like fundamentally somewhat unopinionated on it because I, I just prefer to look forward than backwards. Um, but like, in as much as any opinion I might have about it, I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I it just doesn't like, I think I'm just like fundamentally very optimistic on human civilization and I, I really, I don't know, I just, I believe that we're capable of so many great things and I, I don't, I, I've just never really had this sort of like, what I, I feel is a bit of a, a pessimistic view of like, us like not doing as much as we could be um so yeah like I think like my interest in a lot of these topics is comes less from a place of science is slowing down or we need we need to sort of improve progress because it's stagnating somehow like I'm sort of like unconcerned with it and I'm more about I just want to make sure that all the barriers are removed and we are like moving as fast as possible to the future um but yeah, and maybe that's just a matter of aesthetics of you know whether like you know what what is the fundamental driving reason to get to the same the same outcome or the same area of interest. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm very very optimistic that people are doing doing great things, and I don't know. I, f- I have a very rosy view
0: of the world in that sense. <laughs> well, I, someone told me there's a quote that uh, something like pessimists never build anything. Uh, some, something like that. So uh, maybe it's one of those things that even if it is true, we should fool ourselves into thinking something else because we we build a better world that way. Yeah, even totally. If it's not, <laughs> even if it's not quite true. Um, yeah. I, was, I was intrigued by something you wrote about how you were vegetarian and then not. And I, I guess this is personal for me because I worry a little bit having met some EAs. A lot of them are very into animal welfare. And I, I had wondered whether Um, not being a little bit more veggie was a kind of deep moral failing of my own. Maybe not deep moral failing, but some sort of moral uh, failing. And every year I kind of eat a little bit less like I now, although it's kind of strange because it's not really animals. I don't really eat octopus anymore because I've seen all of this research about how kind of clever and curious and and alien they are. But it doesn't feel consistent because I still eat pork and things like that um but I was kind of interested that you sort of went the other way and I'm, I'm meeting a few people who go the other way and that's actually you know what isn't isn't too big a deal uh, not having overthought that has it uh you know has it been a big thought that you've had or it was just kind of like oh well it's 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 time it's not uh being ready is not a big issue
1: yeah I don't think I've ever been asked this before in an interview so I gotta think about it now um <laughs> yeah I guess for context I yeah I was um I became a vegetarian when I was I think 11 or 12 um and then I remained a vegetarian for about 10 years and then I started eating meat again and now I eat a lot of meat um so I really went like I even tried being <laughs> yeah. like, a carnivore for about okay. six months but it was really hard to just eat that like steak meat. all the time <laughs> uh, yeah um, and so yeah I mean reasons why like originally yeah I became a um, vegetarian out of concern for animal welfare I think I literally saw like a pita something on the internet when I was like 12 and I was like oh my god like I can't do this. Uh, and I think like, yeah, I mean, there was just so many, it's funny cause it's, it's like really hard to know where to draw the line. Um, and I think like being a vegetarian for like a decade kind of gave me an appreciation for how there just like really is no perfect black and white. Like I remember, cause I would be on all these like vegetarian forums and stuff. Uh, and it's like, you know, there are some people that are really extreme. So they would, there are people that would also like troll the vegetarians. It was just, you know, all, all the fun <laughs> of internet culture early internet culture. Um, but I remember like seeing things like, you know, there are like field mice that are being killed in the fields when you're growing your plants or something, you know? It's like, well, what are you gonna do about those mice that are dying? You know, it's just like, it's impossible to get to a point. And then of course, you know, drawing the line between like vegan and vegetarian. And then even within vegans, it's like, you know, like, do you eat honey or not? Or um, uh, do I wear leather products or not? If I'm a vegetarian, should I not be wearing leather? There's just like so many things. Um, and I think like at some point, I think it just made me realize like there, there is no perfect answer. Um, one of the things that I felt I would run into a lot as a vegetarian was you, you know, sometimes it's hard. You go to a restaurant and there's, I've been places where there's literally nothing on the menu that is not, uh, that doesn't have meat in it. And so you end up being like, well, I need to eat something. So you order something and then you take the meat off. Right. And it's like, well, but now I've paid for a meal that, that, you know, I did, I did order the meat I just didn't put it in my body but like didn't I basically just still like you know buy into the system and which isn't it like almost worse that I'm now throwing away the meat and it's been completely unused instead of just like eating it myself um yeah so I I felt like there were just like so many so many nuances and uh and I think like my interest in starting to eat it again I was just kind of like well maybe I can for what I mean for so yeah I started eating meat again when I was whatever like maybe 10 years later but then it was like a very very slow reintroduction of meat um I had this thing where I was like for most of that time I think it was like I, I have like a meat of the month where I like eat meat once a month and have it just kind of be like a a special kind of treat or like you know I will eat it in this situation where I know that the animal was treated really well Um, I've, you know, very high bar for like the meat I'm going to eat. Um, and then I was like, you know, only eating seafood and it was just sort of like, yeah, then slowly, 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 I still don't really eat pork very much. Um, uh, and, and also just like, I didn't grow up eating very much meat, I guess. Uh, so like, you know, I, I, still am a little bit, you know, I don't eat like tons of certain kinds of meat and things like that. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't even really know where I'm going with this. But now, now I'm just kind of going down memory lane on um, on vegetarianism. But I think it's. I just think that I guess maybe like the TLDR is like it's pretty gray and pretty difficult. I think to have a perfect answer uh, to live this like perfect, perfectly moral, like animal cruelty free life. Like everything is tied to everything, um, and everyone needs to figure out where to draw that line for themselves. And for me, like. My personal like health improved drastically when I started eating meat again, um, and so I felt like that was the best choice for me.
0: Sure, that makes a lot of sense, even going to being complete carnivore, which is maybe too much, and actually completely fits into your pluralistic kind of worldview, which seems to be shaping. And I'm also uh, super glad from my point of view that I managed to ask you a unique question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh uh, time somewhat. About that. Yeah, somewhat. And there, it is really complicated. So I, so from a EA point of view, you can actually argue, for instance, that uh, beef, that cattle, if they're well treated and they only have one bag day, has a lot less uh, what they would call suffering risk uh, or suffering uh, with it. On the other hand, you know, environmentalists will say, "Well, you know, we have a lot of beef consumption. Again, depending on how you do it, that's very bad for methane and, and stuff like that." So it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky individual trade off, like you say. Uh, yeah. Maybe sticking slightly with the personal uh, as well on this one, um, I picked up that it seemed to be that your grandmother uh, was quite important in your life, or at least seems to have been an influence. Um, about where she came from and what she was doing. I was wondering whether you had a reflection on what she might have taught you or that feeling of what you learned from knowing about your grandma's life.
1: Uh, So my grandmother actually died before I was born. um, So I did not meet her at all. Uh, But the stories I know of her are through my father, um, her son um, yeah, I guess I, I hadn't really thought about, but like, I, like, there's sort of like the stories that get passed down throughout a, a family, of course. Um, mm-hmm. and I think like something that I've really taken from both my dad and from his, the stories about his, his mother, uh, is just this like sense of adventure and embracing uncertainty. I really get that from, from both my parents since they both came to the U.S. Um, and, and immigrated from other, other places that, and I think like In both cases i just really admire how um yeah like my mom came to the us when she was i think 29 um and just you know basically upended and i I can't imagine as a 29 year old sort of just upending your entire life and just moving to a different country and being like because i just want something different right um is i think pretty cool and my grandmother similarly my, my dad's mom uh so my dad's side is um persian so my uh my grandmother's persian and Um, they left Iran when my dad was like five or something um, and moved to Germany and nobody spoke German. (laughs) Um, My mom or my grandmother spoke a lot of different languages, but like when she came to Germany, she didn't know anything. She was this, you know, older woman with two small kids and uh, yeah, didn't speak the language, just had to like figure everything out. This was also, you know, kind of post-world war ii like germany was not exactly like a place that people are (laughs) dying to move to um and she just sort of at least the way that my my dad has sort of told stories about her and and my relatives like she kind of just like embraced it and was like yeah i don't know just i'm gonna watch a lot of german tv i'm gonna try to make german friends and uh just like figure out how to speak this language and at that point she must have been in her like late 40s i want to say um mid mid to late 40s and so again just sort of imagining I think this theme has actually uh, persisted throughout a lot of my my parents and my extended family just because you know immigrant life people's lives get upended by revolutions and things you don't really expect um, but I think yeah this sort of theme that has captivated me about a lot of my extended family has just been like one day your life completely changes as you know it and uh, I think we associate that level of sort of like high intensity change with your teenage years or your early 20s or you know a time when you're kind of finding yourself but um in you know other cases it's like yeah you're in your 40s you're in your 50s and suddenly like you know everything you know is completely wiped away and you just kind of show up and have to start over and just embracing that uncertainty with this cheerfulness and saying you know i'm just going to figure it out that's that's the way it is um i think that's a perspective that i really cherish and want to yeah embrace in my own life like anytime my life has seemed hard or like something you know there's something very yeah there's just been like a lot of change happening in my life I just kind of think about some of my other relatives where I'm like you know they have been through way worse and they got through it and it was fine so I'll be fine too
0: <laughs> yeah I think that family folklore the stories we tell ourselves are really important in shaping how we are and I, I did wonder about that because of coming through that so is there is there a Zoroastrian influence running through your family as well then
1: uh there is not
0: there is not okay sometimes there is I would said um do you want to play a short um overrated underrated then maybe perhaps in honor of Tyler I have, a, I have a few <laughs> things for that and then we'll just have a couple of questions sure sounds good Sure, so you can pass, overrated, underrated, or you can just make some sort of comment. A couple of those we've already touched on. Uh, We'll start on the big one, I guess. Um, Effective altruism, uh, overrated or underrated?
1: Ooh, that's a tough one. I think it's both underrated and overrated, so it's just kind of a cop-out, but if I really had to pick, I'd actually probably say underrated.
0: Yeah, I, I I think you could get there. It's probably underrated by those who don't know anything about it, and maybe a touch overrated if you are very deeply in it or something like that. Um, how about uh, Miami, overrated or underrated?
1: Ooh, wow. I guess I'm not very good at this game, because I'm going to just probably say <laughs> under, both underrated and overrated for everything. Um, yeah, I think it's underrated as a real city. I think people associate it as like a party city, and I do not have that relationship with Miami at all, and I love it here. Um, yeah, I'll just keep it underrated. Why yeah, not? maybe
0: underrated, right? Yeah, or, and, underrated. Uh, maybe we can do, is it, I guess it's underrated maybe compared to San Francisco or are you putting them in an equal bucket?
1: That's where I feel like they're just kind of different. Like, different. I don't think I have the same sort of like density of like, I mean, nothing will, <laughs> now I'm going to sound like an old person, but I'm just like, nothing will ever <laughs> really compare to like 2010's San Francisco. That was just such a special time. I don't know that Miami is right there yet, Um, but I do think it's a really wonderful place to live, and it has a reputation for being a party capital, which I, again, just completely don't relate to at all. I I love Miami because it's filled with sunshine, and it feels very restorative and peaceful to be here.
0: Yeah, and that's the thing about cities and places. It's also time and place, and then actually it's probably time and place and people. In fact, I think you've mentioned something, and I think it's really true now, that we probably are somehow under-invested in being close to our close friends. I, I I think of this now, I'm in my 40s, and I kind of feel like I would really love to be in walking distance of you know, a handful of my close friends, and we are not because of the way uh, life has come about. But it seems to me that that's often the case, and that might be perhaps a moderate uh, mistake that we somehow all make.
1: Yes, definitely share that.
0: Um, so. Underrated, overrated, at uh, crowdfunding.
1: Crowdfunding. Ooh, I do think crowdfunding is overrated. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not like it's I again pro pro pluralism, so maybe that's a cop out, but like, you know, <laughs> if the I've seen it work for friends like really, really, really well. Um, and so I think it, you know, is absolutely an option that should exist and has transformed many people's lives. I just don't think it's like the one panacea that is going to solve everyone's problems in large part because it depends on being able to market yourself really well and having a certain kind of audience and like it just like not every type of creativity or creative work is going to fit into that I personally have yeah I don't think I've ever used crowdfunding to fund my work and so so, yeah I think it's overrated in the sense that like there are other ways to do it
0: yeah. And do you differ between project crowdfunding or kind of patronage, Patreon-type crowdfunding?
1: Um, sorry, what was the first option?
0: Uh, first one is where you just get a kind of project done, like a kind of more Kickstarter uh, Indiegogo. So you're just funding that as a sort of more one-time, I guess, versus this, this kind of patronage system, which I guess is the modern-day incarnation of maybe old patronage. I'm not quite sure because... Got yeah. these fellowship grants things. I don't know if there is a difference.
1: I don't distinguish between the two for the purposes of this particular <laughs> conversation. Um, in bo- because I think in both cases, you're having to appeal to a wide set of people yeah. and get sort of small amounts of money. Because, like, yeah, I mean, patrons still exist, right? Like, yeah. um, like, Patreon also exists, but it's also possible to just, you know, find a single source of funding.
0: Um, yeah. Sure. Um, Toulouse.
1: Toulouse. <laughs> Oh no, my mother-in-law is going to be listening to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: well, then it has to be underrated, then. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I I don't think I spent. I just came. Yeah, just came back there for for I was there for a week visiting my in-laws. Um, uh, the the duck is definitely underrated. I did not know that Toulouse is the like it's oh. basically like the duck capital of France. Maybe I don't know. There's there's a lot of duck at in uh, Toulouse and. Apologies to my formal former vegetarian self, but I absolutely love duck. So I was eating duck in every shape and form. Yeah. Um highly recommend going to Toulouse if you like duck.
0: Great. Well, and would you family aside, would you like to go back?
1: Um, I don't know that I had like enough of a sense of we were kind of doing a lot of family things, so I don't know that I had enough okay. of a sense um to have a strong opinion
0: on it. But so we can go neutral. Um newsletters.
1: Newsletters. Oh boy. Um Maybe similarly, at this point, I think they're just rated.
0: Right, neutral. <laughs> um, fair enough. Yeah,
1: I would have said they were underrated maybe two years ago, three years ago, and now I think they are appropriately rated. Yeah,
0: that feels fair. I still think they're underrated by the median person, but then I'm quite. Yes, uh, actually, I started. Yeah. I started blogging in the in the first golden age of blogging, and. Uh, I, I still kind of really miss that. And newsletters are sort of a riff slightly uh, on that. You know, those were the days of blogger and, and kind of things like that. Okay, um, maybe last last one, last fun one. Katy Perry. Katy Perry.
1: Oh, boy. I don't know if I have thought about Katy Perry in quite well, some time.
0: Yeah, you compared her to Mark Rothko. That's where this comes from. <laughs>
1: I'm vaguely remembering I do a lot of I, I, the, the <laughs> downside of putting a lot of your life in public is then you say things and you're like yeah. oh geez did I say that I did say yeah, that you could move on uh, from yeah it. I did I remember saying this now because um yeah it's saying that sort of like people will look at, at Mark Rothko and kind of be like you know I don't understand this guy's work it's just like a canvas that is entirely black or something like what what's where is the art in that and yeah similarly with Katy Perry although now probably updating those cultural references to someone more more recent but um you know people look at let's just say any sort of like pop star and kind of be like you know where is the art in that but I think um making it like some yeah simplicity often sort of hides hides a lot of the complexity and a lot of the the work that had to go into making something look that simple um yeah I think there's a lot of hidden art behind it so yeah I'll go with a I'll go with underrated right
0: yeah I I, I think that's really interesting and that's why I kind of don't worry about the future of art in a kind of digital world, because art, there's a big bunch of art, I don't know quite how much the percentage is, but it's representative. Like you have Duchamp's toilet, right? It's it's raising all sorts of other things behind the actual surface object. And uh, I don't know Katy Perry's work that well, but I could see similar, that there's a whole creative production, what it means, what it means in the world and that, which is beyond just the kind of surface, uh, you know, s- sings and songs and things like that. Mm-hmm. Great. OK, so just uh, final uh, two or three questions. Um, uh, what do you think is something that you might understand or you think about the world that perhaps others uh, do not?
1: Ugh. I'm all sort of, yeah, terrible at these <laughs> something questions because <laughs> I, I feel like my brain always wants to go into, like, a lot of different directions. Um, I don't know that I have any sort of unique insights on the world, <laughs> um, really? but, Fair enough. but I'll say like something that, you know, defines how I think. I guess like I, I just, yeah, maybe I, I, I think I just like tend to live a lot in the nuance of things mm-hmm. um, and tend to resist like over oversimplification of the way the world can be, and I think a lot of new ideas and a lot of creative work, like lives at the intersection of, and you see this, over, this is not an unusual statement, like, I, but you can see over and over again, like a lot of creative work comes from sort of like mixing domains or having inspiration from like these unlikely places and you kind of combine it with a different idea and like, you know, you're just mixing and remixing ideas. Right. Um And so I think it's just very, very important to yeah, remain in that sort of like nuanced, open-minded kind of place because that's where all the unexpected ideas are gonna kind of come from
0: sure i think that's maybe not absolutely unique but uh i'm not sure everyone thinks like that and i mean you have a already i think uh, quite a significant interesting body of work where you have made some of these provocations and you go into things some in depth and now doing independent research i think that's um that's a particular form of brilliance so uh, last two questions, what, um, is there any future projects or future thinking you'd like, uh, you'd like to share?
1: Ooh. Um, I don't know if there's anything I'm ready to share yet. I, in addition to sort of the interest in, yeah, looking at kind of these new generations of, of wealth that we've talked about. Um, I've had a couple little like side projects on the brain. Um, I'm definitely, I have this piece I've been meaning to write about anti-memetics, and sort of, I don't know if that's like a topic you've come across, but um, like memetics, like
0: anti-Girard,
1: being sort of, sort of, it's it, a lot of it has been driven by um, this. Uh, I guess call him sci-fi author uh, Quantum, who wrote this book about anti-memetics, and um, it, there's a whole, yeah, like, that that was at least my, my first exposure to it. But mm-hmm. the idea that like memetics being ideas that spread virally, and anti-memetics are or an anti-mimetic idea is something that is very compelling but resists being shared. So, like taboos, oh. for example, would be an example of an anti- something anti-mimetic. Um, I just feel like there's, yeah, room to explore that. Ideas on this spectrum of not just they're not just mimetic or not. Like when we say something is not mimetic, we say we think, oh, it's just not compelling, right? But there are ideas that are very compelling but don't get shared mimetically, and so like. Why is that, and like, yeah, what does that kind of spectrum look like? Um, so I have a lot of like messy working notes on it, but I haven't actually taken the time to put together an essay about it, but uh working on it,
0: <laughs> yeah, okay, that's really fascinating. I hadn't really come across that concept articulated like that, but that kind of makes some sense like taboos, even I guess some sorts of i guess conspiracy theories or not even mm-hmm. like right Definitely. conspiracy theories right things secrets, I guess some sorts of secrets. Uh, I guess some sort of process and know-how is sometimes like that as well. Uh, yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. A lot of different categories to look yeah. ground on.
0: Great. Okay. And then uh, just ending this excellent conversation, do you have any advice or thoughts for others? This could be uh, life advice or thought advice, or maybe advice for those who are thinking of following uh, an independent researcher career path.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean it sounds maybe simple or obvious, but I just would really encourage people to follow their own curiosities. Um, I think I think we don't yeah, I don't think I think a lot of people have really great ideas, but we often kind of dismiss it as, oh, but I'm not really ever gonna go like, you know, down that, that rabbit hole or like I've you know that's that's not a realistic thing for me to pursue, but I really I think one of the most rewarding things about independent research is you get to make your own world exactly as you want it to look. Um, And if you take those sort of nagging curiosities or those intuitions, if you actually just take them seriously instead of dismissing the little voices in your head and you just go all in on them, like life kind of just reorganizes around you to make those things possible. At least that has been my experience. So yeah, I don't know, I I would encourage everyone to sort of listen to those little voices in their head and, and follow their own curiosities.
0: That's a great note to end on, follow your curiosity. Nadia, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me. This is great.
0: If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.